Good morning. Question to start. Coming out of the video we just watched and the book we're diving into, if you, how would you describe Jesus? How would you describe Jesus? How, what one word would you use to describe Jesus? Think about it for a second. As we jump into Hebrews, and especially this first chapter of Hebrews this morning, there is one word that rises to the surface again and again as you read this book, and specifically this first chapter, and the word is better. Jesus is simply better. Better than what? I don't care. Put Jesus before anything. He's better. And so as this morning, as we jump into this book, I want you to keep that idea of better in mind because as when you look at the, the book of Hebrews, there's three words I want to keep in front of us over the next several weeks as we dive into this book. And they're going to help frame what we're talking about, help under, understand why the author's talking about what he's doing and the argument he's making throughout this book. First word is better. Better, in, or you can connect it with the word more or the word greater. It's used 25 times in the 13 chapters of this book. Along with that, perfect is used 14 times. And then eternal is used six times. When you take these three words, these three terms, these three ideas, put them together, you get a major theme that runs throughout the book of Hebrews, and it is this. Hebrews reminds us that Jesus is better because his blessings are eternal and they give us perfect standing before God. Hebrews reminds us that Jesus is better because his blessings are eternal and they give us perfect standing before God. Each one of those things, each one of those truths is important, and we're going to see it throughout this study. It's going to come again and again and again. And as we study this book, I want you to keep that in mind. Maybe at the top of Hebrews, you just write, Jesus is better. Jesus is eternal, and Jesus allows us to be made perfect. That's the message in a nutshell of the book of Hebrews. The video we just watched, walk through, it might be one of those videos you go back as we're studying this book over the next several months and go, hey, let me zoom out and see the big picture. See, as we said, as the video said, the author is unknown. The, the, the fact that Hebrews is in our Bible has never really been in question. The fact that it's the author is unknown has never been of much consequence. Many people have tried, and at the end of the day, almost all scholars step back and go, we really don't know. If you have a fan favorite and you want to pick an author of Hebrews, go ahead. But we don't really know, and you can't really know. What we do know is that the book was probably written in the latter half of the 60s to the 70s AD. We know that because as we study the book, you're going to see a lot of references to the priesthood. You're going to see a lot of reference to the sacrificial system. And in 70 AD, the Jerusalem fell and the temple was destroyed. And it would seem odd that in talking about the sacrificial system, the author of Hebrews wouldn't acknowledge that that had already passed. Because part of his argument when it comes to the sacrificial system is going to be to say that Jesus is better. Well, it would have been a pretty strong argument to say Jesus is better because this no longer exists. So it leads us to believe somewhere in the latter half of the 60s AD, this book was written, which is important because to understand who it was written to, as the video told us, we don't necessarily know who the specific audience was, but we know that they were, probably had a strong grasp of Jewish history. They had a strong grasp of Jewish history. They were Christians and they'd faced persecution at this point, which means a major theme within Hebrews is to hold fast. Because Jesus is better, that's going to be the primary or motivation for us to focus on Jesus and pursue Jesus. When you think about the genre of this book, and like, well, is it a letter? Is it a sermon? Uh, I loved it. Uh, one uh, commentary described it as a sermononic letter. It's like, well, that's a way to split the difference. 
Because it doesn't have the opening of a general letter. It doesn't give, hey, I'm so-and-so, and I'm writing to you so-and-so. But at the end, it gives greetings to specific people. So it feels like a letter at the end, but it also reads much more like a sermon, probably written as a sermon to be shared as a letter with those who would receive this letter. As we jump in, you're going to see throughout the book of Hebrews, as the video pointed out, five different warnings that point back to the importance of remaining faithful. Holding fast to faith because the object of our faith is actually superior to anything else. As we look at this letter and we open up in um, chapter 1, it's important, I think, to recognize that if you read through Hebrews, Hebrews is a long book. It's actually, if you, after the, the Gospels and Acts, if you look at the, the epistles, you have Revelation, Romans, and 1 Corinthians are the only books that are longer than this. And as a result of that, if you've read through Hebrews in the past, what will happen as you read through Hebrews is you get these moments, these mountain peaks with these verses that you're probably really familiar with, have heard a lot about. And then all of a sudden you go into these valleys and you're like, I don't understand exactly what's going on here. But the reality is the valleys are undergirding the mountaintops. They're saying, hey, these mountaintop truths are true. And let me go into great detail to remind you of how true they are. You see, as we dive into the beginning, where the stage is being set with the central theme throughout this book being Jesus. So you have your Bibles, flip over, Hebrews chapter 1. We'll start in verse 1. It says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Long ago, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. When you read these opening verses, what we see right off the bat is he's dividing time. He's dividing time into the past and into the present. He says, hey, in former days, in the past, God spoke this way, but now, today, God has spoken differently. I think I've got a, a slide here that helps us see this, the contrast we find in these verses one and two. It says, basically breaks down when. Understanding that God has always been speaking. God has always been revealing himself, but in the past, and now it's in these last days. These last days are in the last days because after Jesus, there is no other days. Old Testament was always pointing to the Messiah, always pointing to Jesus coming. Now Jesus has come and the only thing left is for him to return. Which is why he says, in these last days. Who to whom? In the past, Jesus spoke to our forefathers. Today, he speaks to us. By whom? Through the prophets. In the New Testament era, by his son. How? Well, in many times, in various ways. But now, once and for all. Now, you could summarize these contrasting forms of revelation by saying, in the past... God spoke through pieces. Actually, if you look in verse 1, it says long ago at many times and in many ways. Many times. Actually, when you look at the Greek under, underlying that phrase, in many times, it actually means in many pieces. So if you think back to the Old Testament, think back to the, the Old Testament, all the stories that we have, all the ways that God revealed himself. You can go, hey, these were little pieces about who God was that he was revealing to us. He spoke in pieces. But today he's spoken in the full picture. 
As I was thinking about this, I thought about a movie that I love from, from years ago. Anybody here seen Truman Show? Old movie, right, in the 90s. But what I loved about it was this idea of, of Truman was looking for, for something. All of a sudden, you can see as the movie goes on, he's like, something's not right, right? Something, life is not what it seems. But part of, one of the things that drives his, his desire to understand what's going on is this girl. This girl that he encounters. And it's a girl he's not supposed to encounter. And it's a girl he's not supposed to have a relationship with. And so she disappears. But Truman won't stop looking. And through pieces, he's trying to find out who this is. And there's a moment where he's holding, he pulls out this and you see over time, he's piecing together different eyes, different hair, different facial features, trying to figure out who was this girl. Now think about it. When we look back at the Old Testament, when we look at what God has provided, we have something that looks like this. And it's beautiful. It's true. But is it, do we know exactly what it is we have? Because the Old Testament is pointing to this, this Messiah, pointing to this Redeemer that's coming. And it turns out it was different. The real thing was so much better than the fragments and the pieces that we had along the way. But the new thing was no different than the fragments and pieces that we had. See, this is what I love as this book opens. The author is saying something has changed. The way our God communicated, the way our God has revealed himself in the past is different because he spoke through prophets, he spoke in pieces, but now he's spoken once and for all, not through a messenger, but through himself. His son, Jesus, has come. The final word has come himself. The final word has been spoken. Hebrews contains 35 direct quotes from the Old Testament and a whole lot of other references. You do the math of 13 chapters, you're talking about several direct references in every chapter and allusions throughout the book, pointing to all the pieces that we had and saying the pieces point to exactly what has happened, although what has happened is actually better than what we thought was going to happen. Verse 1 declares that something has changed, but verse 2 states the glorious change that has taken place. God has come. The one who has been speaking has actually come. So we flip to verse 3. Well, who is this son who has spoken? It says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Who is this son? This isn't just another prophet. This isn't just another messenger. This is God, right? He says the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. You just like, you can't disconnect the rays from the sun to the being the sun. You can't disconnect the imprint left on wax from the signet ring that left the mark saying in no unclear terms, this is not a messenger from God. This is actually God. 
And in case you didn't know that, he's God because he upholds the universe by the word of his power, which would have ushered right back to Genesis and then would have bounced you right up to John's gospel when he opens his gospel and says, the word has become flesh and dwelt among us. The final word has come. The final word is not a messenger. The final word is God. I don't know what you thought of when you thought of how you would describe Jesus. But as I look at these verses and I hear about him upholding the universe by a word, I realize that my view, everyday view of Jesus is a lot smaller than his current reality. I was reminded of that this, this week. Maybe you've heard, seen some articles posted about the James Webb Space Telescope. It's a telescope that went up a while back and it's supposedly 100 times more sensitive or more powerful than the Hubble telescope, which is allowing us to see things that we've, with greater clarity that we've never seen before. A couple pictures that, that surfaced in the last couple weeks are here. And I mean, if, we have to, if I have to be honest, I step back and go, I mean, we can make pictures like this. Right, we graphic design and all the stuff that we have on our computers, we can make pictures. These are not made pictures. These are taken pictures. And not only these taken pictures, these are pictures that I have a hard, a size of which I have a hard time wrapping my mind around. On the left here is what they're calling the Cosmic Peaks. It's located roughly 7,600 light years away. The light, the, the highest peak you see is actually seven light years high. It's just hard to wrap your head around it. This galaxy on the right, they're calling the part of the cartwheel galaxy. They've been able to see it in the past through the Hubble, but it was all blurry. Now all of a sudden it bursts to life. This galaxy is located about 500 million light years away. 500 million light years? I don't even know how they do the math on that. I think we're a little off. Yeah, doesn't matter. It's a long, 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 long way away. But when we go to Hebrews, what does it say about our God? This messenger, this word that came. Now I need to create the world in verse 2. It says he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Like I love that, by a word of his power. Like, I've got a whole lot of words. All I need is one. Just stay, just stay right there. It's as if he's holding it by his pinky, right? A world that you and I think is big around us, but a world that exists in spaces where there are things, if we can just now see this 500 light years away, do we not think that there's something beyond that that we haven't even seen that God created when he created the world? He just said, let it be, and boom, it happened. And ever since that day, he's been upholding it. That's who Jesus is. That's the Jesus that came. And that's the Jesus that Hebrews is saying is better than anything else you can possibly compare him to. So my question, how big is your view of Jesus? Because what we've just seen makes him awfully big. That Jesus came to accomplish a specific purpose, which we see in the middle of verse 
3. It says, after making purifications for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That God, who is that big, decided that our problem was his problem. And he stepped in to solve the sin problem, making purification for sin. And after doing that, what did he do? He sat down. He said, it's done. And he is today and has been and will be seated on a glorious throne. Interestingly, when we look at verse 3, we see three, threefold office that Jesus fulfills. It's not explicit, but it's implied. And we see that Jesus is portrayed as a prophet who speaks a powerful word. He's a priest who provides purification for sins. And he is a king who sits enthroned at God's right hand. Jesus is the prophet, priest, and king that you and I desperately needed and need today. But this letter opens by saying something has changed. That God hasn't changed. The story hasn't changed. But what's changed is that God has actually come. And in coming, he's made purification for sins. You see, throughout history, what we have in Scripture, God has been revealing himself. Have you ever thought about this? Like in this, this book, Scripture is not our idea. It was like some people said, hey, let's write down all the things that God has done. Or, hey, let's, let's talk about who God is so other people can know about him. This book was given by God. Why? Because he wants you and I to know him. That's the only reason that revelation happens. Our God reveals himself so that we can know him. We know that because if it was simply about knowing about him, he wouldn't have done the whole taking care, making purification for sin. Because he could have given us plenty of information about him, but he would have, could have, would have never addressed the issue separating us from him. That is why Jesus is not just a king. He's not just a prophet. He's our priest. And throughout the book of Hebrews, we're going to come back to that theme of Jesus, our high priest, of what he's done to make a way for us to have access to God. One of the things, if you read these first four verses in Hebrews, we have this really high picture of Jesus. But when you and I think of Jesus, we immediately probably think of the cross. Why does the author of Hebrews not start by pointing to the cross or the resurrection? He simply jumps to his enthronement. He jumps to where Jesus is today. He's going to get to the cross. It's going to be later. And actually, the cross is implied here. And when I think about the cross, as I looked at this passage, maybe it's, it's silly, but man, I needed an acrostic to help me remember and recognize how the cross is represented in these four verses. These four verses remind us that this is a continuation of one redemptive story. Well, he says everything has changed. That what has changed is what is now possible for you and I. What hasn't changed is a story that God has been writing from the creation of, beginning of creation. God choosing to come after his people. Our God created, we sinned, and our God ever since then has been on a rescue mission. It's a continuation of one big story. Next, we see that there is a, it's the revelation of a gracious God. When you read the story, when you understand the story, you cannot get, you do not focus on who's being rescued, you focus on the rescuer. It's the revealing of a gracious God. Thirdly, it's, it reveals that there is one God as Father and Son. It reveals the saving of a sinful people. 
And it reveals us our God is seated on a heavenly throne. All of that found in these first four verses. Why? Because of who these four verses talk about. Interestingly, the writer is going to shift gears. You saw it at the end of verse 4. It says, Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. He's going to spend the next end of first chapter 1 and the rest of chapter 2 making a case for why Jesus is more superior than angels. But you and I might step back and go, well, what's, I don't think that's much of a, a controversy, right? Like, I don't necessarily argue, is Jesus better than the angels? Yes, Jesus is better than the angels. But in those days, they, the angels were the messengers from God. It was understood that on Mount Sinai, Abraham or, uh, Moses got the law from angels who were God's messengers. There was nobody higher than angels between God. But all of a sudden we have Jesus and the author of Hebrews is saying Jesus is higher than the angels because rather than God sending his law through a messenger, he's sending his salvation through his son. And so the rest of chapter one is six realities we see about Jesus that paint a vivid picture using Old Testament references to why Jesus is better than an angel. And if you are in the habit of writing, underlining in your Bibles, I would encourage you as we walk through these, I want to highlight these Old Testament passages. And then I want to point to the reality that the author is making through these passages so our deeper under, we can have a deeper understanding of who Jesus is. In verse 5, it says, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? What are we learning here? author is saying he's the very son of God. What, what angel has he said, today I have begotten you? It's a reference to Psalm 2, 7. And then and again it says, I will be a father to him and he shall be a son. It's a reference to 2 Samuel seven fourteen, where it's referring to Solomon, who is the son of David, referencing this promised forever eternal line that would come from the line of David. And so what is the author of Hebrews doing by pointing to these verses? He's saying, no angel has God ever said, today I have begotten you. No angel has ever been tied to being a son of God. And in verse 6, he goes on. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Nowhere in scripture do we see angels being worshipped. We see people trying to worship angels and angels correcting them. And the reason people want to worship the angels is because the presence and their appearance is so glorious. People recognize the only response to something that amazing should be worshipped, to which angels go, uh-uh, you don't worship us, we worship him. What's interesting, a lot of times throughout the New Testament, Jesus is referred to as a firstborn. And sometimes people look at that and go, see, he was born. He, was, he, didn't, always, he wasn't, didn't always exist, therefore he can't be God. But that's simply not true. The Bible refers to a lot of firstborns that weren't actually firstborns. Firstborn is given as a title based to communicate this, the role that they had, the position that they had, the blessing that they had. Jesus is the firstborn of all creation because he's first, because nothing comes before him. Here, we're told he's the firstborn worthy of worship. 
We keep going. Verse 7, it says, Of the angels, he says, He makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. It's a reference from Psalm 104, verse 4, communicating that the angels do God's bidding. Like the angels are designed to serve this Jesus, this God. He is served by angels. He's not in competition with angels. In 8 through 9, we're reminded that he's enthroned and anointed. It says, but the son of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with oil of gladness beyond your companions. Psalm 46, 6 through 7 is being referenced here. Once again, reminding us of where Jesus is. He's enthroned. He's anointed. And in verse 10 and 12, we're reminded that he is the eternal creator. And you, you, Lord, laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you'll roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. He's an eternal creator. And lastly, in verses 13 and 14, we read, And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Verse 13 is a key verse because it references Psalm 110. Bible Project video brought up Psalm 110. Psalm 110 has several references. It's talking about this Messiah coming from the line of David. It's going to be referenced with the order of Melchizedek later in the book. But it begins with this idea of, says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Probably when he, the author starts by talking about the enthronement of Jesus, he's pointing to this. He's saying, hey, we now have an idea, an understanding of what this passage that we've known for years, Psalm 110, actually means. It's talking about Jesus. Psalm 110 is critical to understanding where Jesus is, the authority with which he reigns, and his the focus of this book. So when we step back and we go, well, who is Jesus? The author of Hebrews begins by painting a quick picture, a snapshot of who he is. But he says, but recognize this snapshot matches up with all the references that we had. We didn't even know what they were referring to. We thought we knew that it was going to be this Messiah, but we didn't know exactly what it was going to look like. Well, we know it's Jesus, and now we're connecting the dots between what God has said in the past to what he has said now. He's the very son of God. He's the firstborn who's worthy of worship. He's served by the angels. He's God enthroned and anointed. He's the eternal creator. He is Christ the sovereign where angels are his servants. And guess what? When he compares angels and Jesus, separating Jesus as above the angels, did you catch verse 14? Because this is an amazing truth for you and I. When it comes to angels, it says, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? They serve, angels serve at God's bidding. But one of the groups of people that they're serving is you and me. Angels, part of their purpose is to serve you and me who are to inherit salvation. Think about that for a second. There are angels 
who God has appointed to serve you and me. And that's about as mind-blowing as the galaxy we saw that was 500 million years away. Isn't it? So, what do you think of when you think of Jesus? Verses 1 through 4, open, giving a grand proclamation of who Jesus is. That something has changed. A final word has been spoken. And that word is actually God himself. Verses 5 through 14 are connecting a truth that was known about God to the reality of Jesus. Suddenly, the collage, the pieces that have been put together now are vividly clear in the person of Jesus. What could be better than Jesus? He's God. See, the divinity of Jesus is at the heart of Christianity. Jesus is God and worthy of worship alone. But the author knows that there's going to be a pull. There's going to be a pull to discredit Jesus. There's going to be a pull to lower him. There's going to be a, a desire to put other things in front of him. There's actually going to be a strong push all around us to say Jesus was a great guy, but he wasn't actually God. All of our faith crumbles if Jesus is not God. And every lie, every other religion that tries to take something from Jesus and put him into something, make him a part of something, fails. Because the Bible is crystal clear that Jesus is not a good messenger from God. He is God. So pop quiz. See if you're listening this morning. All of chapter one, we just raced through. How many commands did you pick up on? None. There isn't a single, there isn't a single command in all of chapter one. Because the author has basically taken all of chapter one to set up the reason why every command should then be followed throughout the rest of the book. Five commands, five warnings are given throughout Hebrews and they all rest on the foundation of the reality of who Jesus is that the author lays out in chapter one. I'm gonna cheat and I'm gonna jump into chapter two because chapter two opens with a response to what we have talked about this morning. Hebrews 2, chapter 1 says this, Therefore, we must pay close attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. We must pay careful, or we must pay close attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away. Now, in the moment when we read chapter 1, and I study this, and I'm looking at this, I'm going, drift? Why would you ever drift from this? Like, drift to where? But here's the thing. No one ever drifts on purpose, do they? Nobody would sit in the presence of chapter one, the reality of who Jesus is, and go, yeah, I think I'll, I think I'll, I'll check out option B, right? But we all know in our lives, in my life, the tendency to drift. The belief of, yes, Jesus is better, is replaced by, uh, Jesus is good, but... And we look at the other things that seem a little more urgent, seem a little more pertinent, seem a little more valuable all around us. Drifting is dangerous, which is why the author points out who Jesus is. And he says, we have to do something. We have to be intentional about drawing near 
to experience and remember and see and continue to understand more and more and more about who this Jesus is and how he has called us to live. This summer, um, we got to head up to New York. I think I talked about that a couple uh, months ago. But one part of our trip, we got to head in, we got to go to Niagara Falls. Never been there before. And um, it was amazing. But something struck me as we're driving into Niagara Falls, having never been there. I've seen pictures like this, right? And I knew that it's this place and there's like a lot of water there. Um, But as we're driving in, if you've ever been there, you drive in and you're driving along the river. And the river looks like any other river. Actually, it looks like a river that could be kind of fun to raft down. But as we're driving in, I'm thinking this water is going to that place. And what seems calm, what seems smooth is about to be absolutely terrifying. So when we went to Niagara Falls, we didn't go over the falls. When you go to the falls, you get in a boat, the maid of the mist, right? You put on your poncho and you are driven into the falls. Why? Because if you go to Niagara Falls and you don't go there, you go, why did you go all the way there and not go there? <laughs> and you might go, well, I mean, you get, you get wet. And that's the point. You see, we got on the boat and I think we have a couple pictures here. Like Molly decided she didn't need a poncho. She can attest to the fact that you get wet in Niagara Falls. That's after. As I was thinking about this this week and the warning not to drift, Jesus has made a way for you and I to be not drift over the falls, but to be driven to the falls. And when you are driven to the falls and the boat somehow is able to withstand the current and sits right in the middle, It's deafening, it's incredible, and it's terrifying. Because there's not a moment where you're going, well, I think if I jump out, I could maybe make it. No. The falls are the falls. The reality, my view of them doesn't change them. The power of them isn't dictated, predicated based on what I decide it's worth. It is what it is. That's the same with Jesus. In a culture that says like, well, Jesus, I think what Jesus said meant was this, or I think we can take that and we can twist it this way. And I think that's actually gonna be a little more palatable for our culture. And it's gonna make people love him more. Jesus is like Niagara Falls. He's gonna keep flowing. You know that in one second, just over Horseshoe Falls, over almost 700,000 gallons of water come over those falls. One second. And it's been pouring and pouring and pouring and pouring and pouring. So here's my challenge to us this morning. You can look at Hebrews chapter one and who Jesus is. And you can choose to walk away but it doesn't change who he is. 
And when God spoke the final word through Jesus, he took something, the natural course of history, which was for you and me to be in a river, floating through life, seeming like everything was pretty good, unbeknownst to us, Niagara Falls was waiting. But in verse 3, we're told that Jesus made purification for sins. It changes everything. Because rather than going over the falls, he invites us to step out with his help to then walk us around, to put us on the boat of his grace and his mercy. And he drives us into the falls. To which he says in a thunderous roar, I am better. I'm better than anything else. And the natural, natural result is, even though you've come here, is to just kick back and relax. The result will be you will drift further and further and further away from this place. But this is where you want to be. This is where all of history becomes immediately crystal clear. And it's where God's love is proclaimed the loudest. My challenge to us this morning is to recognize that Jesus is better. Jesus is the foundation on which we build all of our life. And in a culture that somehow dismisses the reality of who Jesus is and somehow oftentimes throws arguments at me that I go, ah, I don't know how to answer that. I don't know how to respond to that. I don't know how, 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 to, how to take the fact that I love you, but I think you're wrong based on what this says. This is a vivid reminder of who Jesus is, where he is seated, the power in which he has, and the love that he's extended to every single person. The Jesus in Hebrews 1 doesn't need us making excuses for him or softening his message. He needs us pointing people to the reality of who he is and the invitation that he has given. That for us, as we step into this school year, step into a new season, maybe it's an opportunity for you to say, hey, what in my life am I, what will I do to ensure that I'm honoring the warning in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1, to draw near so that I can listen to what Jesus has already said. As we end our time, we're going we're to sing. I want to point you to the back corners. And up here, we got communion, which is just the declaration of what Jesus has done for us. Maybe in this, you're going, man, there's, there's a whole lot going on in my world, and I just need someone to pray for me. Beginning this week, we're going to be pointing people to the back, these back corners where we have some prayer advocates. They have a, a lanyard on, and their sole purpose at the end of our gatherings each week is going to be to pray for you, to pray over you, if that's something that you would want. But for all of us, I would just encourage us to respond to the reality of who our Jesus is. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for who you are. Thankful that you love us. Thankful that you've come for us. God, we're thankful that there is one story that has been, you have written and been writing from the beginning of time. It's the story of a God who created, who upholds, is rescuing, and is redeeming this world, which includes each one of us. So God, may we worship you. And God, may we not drift from what you have told us is true. In Jesus' name I pray.